last week, Jesus talked a lot about the end times, the day of the Lord, which is closely associated with the coming of the Messiah in all the, you know, prophecies in the Hebrew Bible. And I want to note at the outset that most of what I'm going to tell you today is in three or more of the Gospels. This is really important stuff. But as you might suspect, each writer puts the events in a different order and includes different details. So, you know, it's it's presenter's choice here. So I have ordered the events and the dialogue in a way that makes sense to me, given the content and the context. But how I present it is not the only way to order the chronology. So the people, the religious leaders, and perhaps even some of the disciples are getting more and more insistent that Jesus declare himself as the Messiah. The religious leaders want him to declare himself because then they can have the Romans arrest and crucify him as a threat to regional peace. They're These religious leaders are trying to protect their status quo and really protect the the Jewish nation by getting rid of Jesus. But the disciples and the people want Jesus to declare himself the Messiah so he can usher in the grand military defeat of Rome. They yearn for peace and the restoration of Israel as an independent nation, just like is prophesied. They think Jesus is about to become a supernatural king and general, and the pressure on Jesus is intense. Jesus keeps telling them they've got it all wrong, but no one is listening. Now, Jesus and the disciples are staying somewhere near Jerusalem. Matthew mentions them being on the Mount of Olives, which is just east of Jerusalem on the side um, where the temple uh, is. Um, Jesus knows he's got to prepare the people and the disciples for his torture and death. Think about it. What will happen to their faith if they expect him to be the conqueror? And instead, he gets crucified by Rome. Will they think his whole life has been a fraud and that everything he's told them about the good news is fake? Will they turn away from God in anger and disappointment? I think Jesus decides it's time for an object lesson, something they'll remember. There's an old messianic prophecy in the Hebrew Bible in Zechariah 9.9 that says, Tell daughter Zion to rejoice, for her king comes to her victorious and just and riding on a donkey, a colt. This is part of a long messianic passage about how in the end times, War will no longer come to Jerusalem and how all the implements of war will be taken away and broken. It encourages the people to have hope for the Lord will free them from prison and restore twice over what they have lost. And it talks about the Lord himself coming like lightning and shielding his people, a shepherd saving his flock. So far as I can tell, Jesus' idea is to emphasize the peaceful spiritual aspects of this prophecy 
and how they apply to him. He's he's trying to get the people and his disciples to think outside of the military box. He is their king. He is victorious and just in every sense of those words, but he is also humble. Now, this is my read of the situation. There are definitely other ways to look at this. So take my interpretation of Jesus' intent with your usual grain of salt. I think Jesus sets this next bit up because he doesn't want the people to be picturing him riding into Jerusalem on an elephant with the military at his back. God's power is different. And God's idea of freedom and restoration involves so much more than military might. If the people insist on making Jesus king, they need to know it's going to be on Jesus' terms. And perhaps this old prophecy is a way to help them understand. So Jesus tells two of his disciples to go into the village that's, you know, just down the road. And he tells them they'll find a colt there. One so young, it's never even been ridden. Jesus says to untie it and bring it to him. And if anybody asks them what the heck they think they're doing, they're to say, the Lord needs it. He'll return it soon. So they go to the village and sure enough, there's a very young colt tied up, barely old enough to ride. And when the people standing there challenge the disciples, they say what Jesus told them to say, and the people let them walk away with the donkey. There's no saddle or anything like that on it. It doesn't even, it doesn't have one. So they throw their own cloaks over the donkey. So Jesus has something to sit on. The crowd, of course, senses that something big is happening. Jesus is openly entering Jerusalem. Could it be that the time has come? Will he become king now? I don't think the people even realize how ridiculous Jesus looks sitting on this young donkey with his feet dragging the ground. The people don't care. The crowd starts getting excited. Some of them spread their cloaks on the road in front of Jesus like a red carpet. More and more people join in. Some run to cut branches from trees and lay them in front of him in exactly the same way. Triumphant processions have been made since ancient times. Pretty soon, it's a loud, joyous parade with some people running ahead and other people running behind and everyone shouting, Hosanna, which means save and shouting, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. As Jesus approaches Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit falls on the crowd. The disciples begin praising God. The shouts of the people well up in praise of God for truly the king is entering Jerusalem, just as Zechariah prophesied. The Pharisees are beyond alarmed. This is their worst nightmare. How are the Romans going to react? They tell Jesus, rebuke your disciples. 
But Jesus, sensing the powerful movement of the Holy Spirit among the crowd, says, even if they are silent, the stones will shout. Isn't that interesting? All of creation, even the stones themselves, are longing for the moment of Jesus' coming. The Holy Spirit moves through all of creation. As the parade comes down off the Mount of Olives and approaches the gates of Jerusalem, Jesus sees the beloved city with the temple in the foreground, and and he weeps. He weeps for what might have been. With tears streaming down his face, he says, Oh, Jerusalem, if you had only realized that the things of this day were intended for peace for you. Right? That's obviously been God's intent all along. Jesus has done his best to make it clear that God's message is peace, but the people only want war. They are clinging to a military solution to their problems. Jesus continues, But now these things are hidden from your eyes. Days are coming when enemies will throw up ramparts against you. They will hem you in on every side. They will raise you to the ground, both you and your children within you. If only you had recognized this time of your visitation. Poor, poor Jesus. He knows what could have been. And he knows what is going to happen instead. He knows that a few short years from now, the Romans will descend upon Jerusalem and utterly destroy it. But all is not lost. Even though the people have refused to see that God has drawn near and the Messiah is at hand, all those old prophecies about God saving Jerusalem and there being peace will come to pass. It's just not going to be right now. For the Hebrews and for God, time is not linear. It's more like a pretzel where the past, present, and future mingle freely as if they, you know, have porous boundaries. So the fact that the people missed this opportunity for peace on earth does not mean it will never happen. There's still a point to all this. Jesus' life has not been wasted. God is going to step in in a big, miraculous way, both now and in the future end times. But I get ahead of myself. The Pharisees try again to keep Jesus from entering the city. They say, leave this place. Herod is trying to kill you. The Pharisees are clearly trying to do damage control. They know there will be a swift and vicious backlash from Rome after this public demonstration. Herod will read it as a dangerous riot. The Messiah is not good news for Rome, and they have been on hyper alert, watching for any hint of a Messiah, King of the Jews. But Jesus says, you tell that fox to just watch me. Tell Herod I will keep on throwing out demons and healing people both today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I am finished. But no matter what, 
I must make it to Jerusalem, for certainly no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem. Poor Jesus, as strong as he is being, this is all breaking his heart. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, killing prophets and stoning those sent to you. How often I have wanted to gather your children the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wing, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate. You will not see me again until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one coming in the name of the Lord. This has always been, at least for Jesus, about us seeing with our eyes and hearing with our ears. It's never been about military might. Jesus needs them to understand that he has been sent from God in the name of God for the purpose of healing and wholeness and peace, most especially for Jerusalem and her people. Jesus is entering Jerusalem from the east, from from the Mount of Olives. So he goes directly into the temple complex. Now, this area is packed with people who have come to celebrate the Passover. As required by the Mosaic law, each family brings sacrifices. Those who have traveled from far away just purchase the animals right there in the temple precincts rather than dragging the animals all the way from their homeland. So there are merchant booths set up in the temple courtyards for this purpose. Also, Roman coin cannot be used in the temple. So there are money changers for those who need to exchange their Roman coins for ones that can be used inside the temple precincts. Jesus, as you just saw, is in a tender spot in his soul. He has been weeping. He has felt the Holy Spirit just well up in power as he entered Jerusalem just now. I think think he feels overwhelmed by being the Messiah, by this big parade of people thinking he's a military king, and by now literally standing there in the temple court with all the noise and the buying and the selling going on around him, and nobody even knows who he is. It's business as usual in the temple, even as the Messiah himself enters. And suddenly, I think Jesus is overcome with the utter wrongness of it all. He fashions a whip out of cords and confronts the merchants and money changers, overturning their tables and driving them from the temple courtyard. He shouts, get out of here. Do not make my father's house into a marketplace. It is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And once the space is cleared of the merchants, it is filled with people who need healing. That is such a universal truth, isn't it? How easy it is for business and programs to completely run over people, especially people who are wounded and beat down. 
It is only when business and program are cleared away that the wounded and needy can come forward. And just as he told the Pharisees he would do, Jesus begins healing the lame and the blind. The kids, of course, are still running around with their tree branches shouting, Hosanna to the King of David. Jesus doesn't have a problem with that. He makes no move to quieten the children. The Pharisees, however, are outraged, saying, don't you hear what those kids are saying? And Jesus says, well, yes, as a matter of fact, I do. Haven't you read the psalm that says, out of the mouths of children and babies, you have made your praise complete? (laughs) And with that, Jesus leaves Jerusalem and heads out to Bethany, where he plans to spend the night, probably with Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus. Early the next morning, Jesus and the disciples head back into the city. As they walk, Jesus gets hungry, so he goes over to a fig tree to pick some fruit. But there's no fruit on the tree, so Jesus curses it, saying, May no one ever eat fruit from you again which seems really harsh since it's not the season for figs. Immediately, the tree withers. The disciples are astounded, but Jesus says to them, I promise you, you can do this too. If you have faith and do not waver, you you could even tell this mountain to throw itself in the sea and it would happen. Whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. Now, This seems like a strange little story to throw in here, right? Especially that part about Jesus cursing the tree because it didn't have fruit out of season and saying no one will ever eat fruit from it again. And you know what it means when something seems out of place or doesn't make sense. It means it's time to pull out our backpack tools to see if we can figure out what's going on. The first thing we notice is that this passage is in Matthew. And we know Matthew copies from Mark. So let's go look to see if the same story is in Mark. And sure enough, it is. It's in Mark chapter 11. But then we notice something strange. In Mark, the story is split into two pieces. The first piece is in verses 12 to 14, while the second piece is in verses 19 to 25. Aha! That's a sign it might be an intercalation. Mark loves to use intercalations in his writing. An intercalation is, I think of it like an Oreo. It's where two stories are sandwiched together. You start with one story, like the chocolate on the outside, The second story gets inserted like the creamy inside, and then you finish up with the first story, the rest of the chocolate. And that matters because it means the point of both stories is related. So first, you want to look at what the two stories have in common, and then you want to focus on that aspect of the middle story. That will be the core point. So let's see if we can figure this intercalation out. Mark starts the story the same way Matthew does. 
Jesus is hungry as he and the disciples walk from Bethany to Jerusalem for the next day of the Passover festival. He goes to the fig tree looking for fruit to nourish him and finds none. He curses the tree saying, may no one eat fruit from you again. Then Mark inserts the story. This is the white cream part about Jesus finding the merchants and money changers in the temple when it should be a house of prayer. Jesus drives them out and the religious leaders look for a way to kill him, but are afraid of the crowd. And then Mark finishes the fig tree story. This is the second, the, the last bit of the, the chocolate outer part of the Oreo. He says that when evening comes, as Jesus and the disciples are trudging back to Bethany for the night, they pass the fig tree. Peter sees that it has withered from its very roots, and he realizes it's the same tree that Jesus cursed earlier that morning. And Jesus tells the disciples that if they have faith, that whatever they ask for, they will, re they will receive. Now we know because it's an intercalation that these two stories are related, but the center story will be the most important and central point. The outer story should reveal what we're supposed to look for in the inner story. So let's start our analysis. One thing we see right away is that this entire sequence, including the punchline, seems to be about authority. In the outer part of the story, the chocolate part of the Oreo, Jesus establishes that he has authority over that fig tree's life, death, and future. And we also see that what is important to Jesus is the tree's fruitfulness, its readiness to serve when needed, whether in season or out of season. So let's make a note of those points from the outer story and see what they tell us about the inside story. If we take these points and apply them to that middle part of the story, we can see that in driving out the many changers and merchants, Jesus is literally establishing his authority over the temple. But there must be another component here, right? How does fruitfulness and being re and readiness to serve link into this middle story? Well, for one thing, the problem with the merchants and money changers is that they and their customers are missing the point entirely. They're all about business and ticking off the boxes and doing the correct sacrifices with the correct animals and paying the correct money for them. But that's not where God's heart is at all. They've lost the plot. God wants to meet his people in this temple space. We know that's all God has ever wanted from us. From the days of Adam and Eve, sacrifices were meant to be a means of communing with God. It is us bringing God our first fruits in humility, bringing the best of our best, knowing that these are gifts God has given to us in the first place. And God's gifts and abundance are never out of season. Therefore, there should never be a time when we have nothing to offer back to God. 
These money changers and merchants and all these people are completely missing the point. Regardless of the law and the rules and the regulations, the truth is that as long as they are coming in faith and humility, whatever the people bring to God will be more than enough, no matter how little or how much they have. Jesus wants the disciples to understand this. Their own faith, even if it is as small as a mustard seed, will be enough for whatever comes. Whatever they have to offer will be enough if they offer it without hesitation, knowing that it is acceptable to God. Whatever they ask for from their father will be given to them freely, for Jesus is giving his authority to his disciples to do the work they're called to do, and their faith will make them fruitful, and their authority comes from God himself. Pretty cool, huh? Those backpack tools may seem small and simple, but they are very powerful. Taking the time to apply our backpack tools will untangle all sorts of questions and will lead us into a deeper and deeper understanding of our own role in the kingdom of God. But there's even more here for us. Let's look at this incident with the fig tree and put it in conversation with the idea um, of God showing up in the day of the Lord. All right. Well, this, what we were talking about here, um, at, at least at the first part, was the um, fact that in the Hebrew Bible, all these prophecies about the Lord coming and might and power, the, the source of the people's belief that God was coming as a military commander, that the Messiah was coming as a military commander, were Israel-centric, specifically Jerusalem-centric. Um, that that was the event. It wasn't, you know, some kind of big global thing. And and uh, so my uh, and part of that would be um, that, of course, God wins. You know that, right? <laughs> and 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 afterwards, all of the nations that had come to war against Jerusalem would just bring all of the Jews that, that who have been scattered generationally across the whole world back to Jerusalem using ambulances or trains, planes, trains, automobiles, whatever they could get them to, to, to Jerusalem on. Um, all these Gentile nations would bring the Jews there. So all of this prophecy is very Jewish centric about the Messiah. Where do Christians fit in this ecosystem? Specifically, does God show up to fight for us? Should well, he brought up a good point, which was, well, how are we defining fight? Hmm? You know, is it support and encouragement? Is it touching our heart to help us find a, a path? Is it something else? What what is fighting for us? Mm -hmm. We 
and I offer the story. I have a friend that's struggling with three types of cancer. And as of this week, two types of cancer, praise God. And she doesn't use the term fight. So I take my cue from her. We're not fighting. And whenever I talk to her, I just want to be encouraging and positive about whatever's going on. And she appreciates that. I know she does. And I know she has the most amazing outlook about her situation. And she's healing remarkably. Sometimes not fast enough for what she wants. And I'll just remind her, this is where you were. And this is where you are. And this is where you're going. You're doing great. And she's appreciative. So it depends. What is fighting? Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that goes back to the whole thing about how were the people in Jerusalem seeing Jesus in terms of being the Messiah? And how was he actually presenting himself? Because they were looking for a warrior king. And he said, I'm bringing healing and peace and reconnecting with God. And so it's, how do you define the fight? Like Julia said. (laughs) Seems like he was a tougher Gandhi. (laughs) (laughs) And you had a comment. Yeah. When it comes to the Gentiles, you know, it makes you wonder, I mean, was Christ surprised by the role of the Gentiles? You know, the Samaritan, how do you say Samarian? Is that uh-huh. say? Samaritans, yeah. It Samaritans. seems to be at first. And, you know, and the followers that were Gentiles that, that truly had this deep faith. So was that his design so that his disciples could see, yo, wait a minute, we need to like include everyone? Or was Christ equally as surprised by these actions and said, now, wait a minute, maybe I shouldn't just focus on this one splinter group, the Jews, maybe I should open my realm to everyone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there was some indication um, early in his ministry, very early in his ministry, um, where he indicated some surprise. And in fact, the first person that he announced, he was the first and only actual person outside of his inner circle of disciples that he announced um, that he was mis- actually told he was the Messiah was a Samaritan woman. And it was very early in his career. And then also there was an incident where he actually denied a woman healing um, for her daughter, I think. And, um, and because she was not Jewish, she said, I've been sent to Israel. And she said, yeah, but even the dogs get the crumbs under the table. And he said, okay, <laughs> your faith is what's healing. Your, the fa- he always said, to, even to the Jews, it's your faith that's healing you. He said, okay, I see your faith. Your daughter is healed. Um, and, um, and certainly there were prophecies at his birth about him coming to all nations. And there are some prophecies Even in the Hebrew Bible, they're not ones that get focused on, but there are prophecies in the Hebrew Bible about the uh, Assyria and Egypt and the other nations being included and beloved by God. So it's, um, you know, and certainly (laughs) we're included and loved, loved, beloved by God. We know this. 
Right. I think that what I'm trying to get to is the idea that the military part of those prophecies is not the important part, perhaps, and especially not the important part to the Gentiles. It's super important to the Jews and to Jerusalem. I don't think it was corrected for us. It is fascinating, though, to think about the, I don't know, maybe cognitive dissonance that Jesus must have gone through and trying to figure out who he was and what was his mission. And, you know, people start telling that he's the Messiah, but but as you said, that most Jews thought of the Messiah as a as a as a kingly figure, a, a uh, military figure. And so it's like he's thinking, okay, well, if I'm the Messiah, I'm I'm not what they're expecting. So so how can I be the Messiah if that's you know if I'm not going to come in as a military mind? Anyway, it's just all it's very fascinating that the thought processes that he must have gone through. Well, and 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 talk talked a little bit about Jesus and his humanity. Um, before I delve into that a little bit or turn it over to Anne if she wants to talk about it. One of the things is what happens when we have expectations? We are always somewhat either amazed or disappointed or both. But our expectations tend to get us in trouble. More in relationship like- everywhere. 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 Expectations are a dangerous thing. You have to humble yourself and say, wait, this is the situation and I accept it and I want it and I appreciate what is, not what I want it to be or what I expect it to be. I think Jesus had to do that. Yeah, and he, and I think that's what he was saying in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, "Let tomorrow worry about itself. There's, it's got enough to worry about." But Anne had some great points about Christ and his humanity. I had a good idea once. <laughs> <laughs> and sorry, there's a blender going on. Um, the only thing I I thought, you know. Christ came down in human form and, and I think he, he enjoyed it. And I think his fits of anger were just like us. We, we know what the mission is, but there's a part of us that doesn't want to do it. And I, and there was fear, you know, I, I think about, if somebody said to me, well, in a month, you know, you're going to get tortured and beaten up and it's going to hurt. And, and I, I think that he, there was a part of him that really connected with being human. Now this is just me interpreting. And remember, I don't know diddly squat of anything, but I think the, these fits of anger were, were true frustration. I think he kind of liked being down here and was like, yo, this is pretty chill. Yeah. But I have a mission and you know, I just look at there were uh, what I had said were there were so many outlets he could have gone and hidden. 
and nobody would have found him. Hell, he could have gone to New York. No one ever would have found him for, you know, a couple thousand years. Would have been right. Nice. But he he had to stand and face this. And, and I think there was a part of him that didn't, didn't want to and was scared. I think he felt those human emotions. I do, too. Well, and we, also, we also talked about something, you know, and I think Woody seconded it was what kind of literary license did the disciples take to explain and justify some of his behaviors, possibly? Yeah. And some of his message. Yes. Mm-hmm. We're certainly seeing differences you know, laying those gospels side by side, you definitely see differences. And then you, if you put John in on top of it, John was our first theologian. He was the first one to go beyond just the narrative and start trying to make sense of what God was doing cosmically with, with all of this. And he wrote that into his gospels. Um, it's been changed a bunch of times too. After that, with every version, they left things out, put things in stuck to the side you know so all the different versions of the bible have had something change well and also when someone you love does something stupid you don't stop loving them and you try and justify it and you try and put yourself in their place and see how they could have done that you know and i think with christ coming down and doing what he needed to do the disciples also saw some of that humanity, but also wanted to shed the best possible light on it in, in their reflections upon his story about wilting a fig tree. Why did he have to do that? Why did he have to curse something that did nothing more than what nature intended? It has a season. There's more books in the Bible that talk about seasons and how everything has its season. But he just must have been in a moment, cursed that tree, and somebody had to write what that meant for us. I think that might have been one of the examples of literary license. Just personally. Just, that's just me. Yeah. yeah, we spent a lot of time in our group talking about that and the temple, um, yeah. trying to make sense of, of Gail, your look at the intercalation and still struggling. You know, it seems like it has, especially the temple cleansing thing. I, all of us have heard multiple sermons trying to make sense out of that scenario all from, you know, the money changers were taking advantage of people to know this was performative art. Um, I mean, everything in between. And, and then the point um, of people finding it more convenient to not bring something of their own that they had raised and bringing it all the way to the temple, but, oh, we'll just buy it when we get there. Um, and sort of missing the point of what had been laid down in the early law, that this is supposed to be the fruit of your labors, um, also surely made the point that um, the very poor often would might not have had something to bring um, and 
could get a couple of doves, but they probably were financially being taken advantage of by the money changers. Um, and that that was what got Jesus angry. Um, seems like a lot of people struggle with that story mm-hmm. uh, because it does seem inconsistent with the rest of the story of the life and teaching of Jesus. Are you talking about the money changer story or the fig tree story? Well, the two, because the fig tree story was in Mark was sandwiched in between the story of the cleansing of the temple. Other, yeah, other way around. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The the fig tree was the, the, the cookie part of the Oreo and the temple was the cream part of the Oreo. And um, and both of those seem seem really, really weirdly out of character. And um, and so we were struggling with with, you know, first of all, what you had what you had seen in the story and um, and could we see that, too? Mm-hmm. And and also. Why? <laughs> you know, until you talked about it, Marlene, I never thought about the money changer sorority as being disposable consumerism. You know, we'll just get it when we get there and then we'll slaughter it and it'll be done and we don't have to carry it the whole way and it's not ours. I just had never thought about that. That was like the first, you know slice bread for them yeah see that's what i thought i go this this is a service yeah but on the other hand it was it was i think sort of missing the point of why they were doing a sacrifice is is was always seen as you are giving you know more of yourself than just a few coins you were, you, you know, you were laboring at home, you were growing crops or you were raising animals and you would pick the best of what you had grown and were offering that to God rather than for convenience sake, just traveling to Jerusalem and then buying whatever was there. And the money changers, yes, they were providing a service because the, the Roman coins couldn't be used in the temple. But then the question is, why were the coins needed in the temple in the first place? You have to go back to the people found it more convenient, less of a hassle on the road to show up and then buy something and then offer that as if this is what I am giving to God. You know, it makes actually precedent. There's actually precedent for that in the Hebrew Bible. There are times. uh Uh-huh. There are times where, uh, especially in the the one that immediately comes to mind is um, when after the tenth plague and and the angel takes the firstborn of Egypt and Pharaoh finally lets the Hebrew slaves go. Um, God said, "You know, from from now on, all the firstborn belong to me." But He said, "I don't want you to kill your kids. You can." you know, swap out um, an, an animal. There are, there are places where you can pay, you know, um, and um, so there, there is some, I think there is some precedent for that. 
Gail, I was wondering, was Christ's anger just toward the money changers, the actors that did that, and the people who provide the service, or to the people who consume that service too, kind of mm -hmm. taking the easy way out and creating that appetite for them to even be there. You know, I, I personally, and this is my personal opinion, everybody's opinion is equally good on this because we don't know. Um, I personally read this, the story as Jesus standing there as the Messiah in the middle of this busy business exchange which is what it had boiled down to. The sacrifices had boiled down to, for whatever reason, a business exchange. And looking around him and not seeing an attitude of prayer in anybody. Because if anybody had been attuned to the Holy Spirit, they would have realized the Messiah was there. And in fact, it was... And, and it, I thought it was telling to me that it was only after Jesus cleared the decks that the people who needed healing came forward. And that's where God is. God's all about making space for the people who need healing. I think it is that that Jesus was angry about. I think there was a song in Superstar that expressed it really well. My temple should be a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. Get out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's a direct quote from the prophecy. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Donna, did you have a, a, a comment? Probably, but I don't know what it was now. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> There's a lot of things. Oh, no, 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 no. It's all good. <laughs> so what's the answer to number three? Okay, so let's move on. So um, questions two and three had to do with, you know, what does the fig tree have to teach us? And do we believe we have the authority to move mountains as disciples? Um and, you know, to kind of talk about that. And, um, and then that was question two. And then question three was, is there a difference between the idea of God being on our side and fighting for us uh, and the idea of us wielding authority over mountains and fig trees? So those are all kind of, you can take those two questions together and talk about that. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of leaning in the direction of this might have been one of those things that Jesus was saying specifically to his disciples who had been under his tutelage, had lived with them. He had empowered them when he sent them out to the village and said, you now have the authority to heal people and cast out demons and raise the dead. Um, and not necessarily that we all should expect that that's the the goal we're aiming towards and if we can't do that then it's you know you get the guilt and the shame and the well you obviously don't have enough faith and that's the whole reason things aren't working out for you um, I think if we extrapolate that 
to all of us, it no longer becomes a gift, it becomes a burden. If it's not, you know, we could have all the faith in the world and things still don't change or sometimes things even get worse. And then in certain religious circles, we are then blamed for not having enough faith or having unconfessed sin in our lives or something to explain right. why. There's some hidden sin, you know? Yeah. Why <laughs> demon working? Yeah, people in my sister-in-law's church told her that when she was diagnosed with cancer. They came to visit her in her home and said, are you sure that you have really searched your heart? Because there must be some unconfessed sin in your life, and that's why you got cancer. Yeah. My Um, uncle's church said that to my dad. Same thing for cancer. Yeah. And and so... um, That's a good red flag to move on. Yeah. But yeah. but it, it seems to me that that if if our expectation is that that if we can't manipulate nature, then that is a reflection on the fact that we are not good enough, good enough, righteous <laughs> holy. enough, holy enough, have enough faith, not enough in in any way that that's a burden that is not a gift mm-hmm. and i i have trouble with that i didn't see it that way at all i'm glad you brought that up i need to reflect on that well well tell me tell me how you see it because you know like i said that's just me that's yeah I, to- I told a story i'm sorry for my people that have to hear it again mm. um When I was 19, someone helped me out of a bad situation. And that planted a seed in me. It also brought me to Christ. Um, And that planted a seed in my life that whenever I'm faced with an opportunity that I can do something positive, I feel bound to that, not in a bad way, but in a giving way to pay it forward. And I was reminded on Facebook today about sometime five years ago where that happened today. And I sent that message to the person that was involved and her message to me brought me to tears, you know, about being light in the darkness when she had no hope. And I didn't see it that way. I just saw it as it was time to help. And I got others involved and we helped. And right now I have another situation where there's someone who needs help and I'm doing my best to help because that's what you do. That's what God tells us. We need to help one another. We need to be fruitful. And I feel a commitment of that because I was the recipient of that and it brought me to Christ. Mm-hmm. And so I know the power that that holds of loving people and being there for people can change their lives and bring them to Christ. It's Christ and the Holy Spirit working through us. We just have to give it the opportunity so that we can be fruitful and not shrivel up. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I, I totally agree with you 100%. I, um, 
So what you're seeing is when it talks about you could move a mountain if you had enough faith, you're seeing that moving a mountain as doing, helping a person in difficult circumstances to help them get through or sharing your love in ways that are tangible out in the world. So that Yes, and helping them to do the same thing. Kind of anything can be accomplished kind of thing. Being the example, being the change you want to see in the world. And I, I agree with that too, but it's the other where it's like, I did these specific things, moving mountains, did this, and you can do that too. Healing, it doesn't mean this stuff's impossible, but it makes it a burden to say, I mean, there's a lot of people say you can heal somebody if you're doing it the right way not like you you are healing but it's a different level to me it's not that actual specific instance of healing someone right then that foot got chopped off here boom new foot whatever this not is not a physical healing but an emotional healing no right no and i agree with that it's just i saw the more specific story of saying you could do these exact things I'd like to offer um, a third way to look at this. Oh, do tell. <laughs> I know you're shocked. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm anticipating and anxious and excited. <laughs> With bated breath. Oh, brother. Um, <laughs> I think that the promise is that we will have whatever power and authority we need to accomplish the task that God sets before us. And if that involves moving mountains, because that's what God needs to have happen in that moment, we can stand there and move that mountain. And if that, and Jesus healings, if you remember, um, those were billboards from God. Those miraculous healings, their whole purpose was not to just heal everybody in the world physically and then nobody's ever going to die again. That wasn't the point, even for Jesus. The point was Hey, this is my son. This is the Messiah. Listen to him. He's his power is from God. Pay attention to what he has to say. So if we are in a situation where that's important to God, for us, where God needs that billboard to be pointing to us, I fully expect to be able to heal, to slap that foot back on, you know? Um but that's not where God has me, right? God has not sent me as Messiah to the world. You know, God has just put me in a place where I can use all this stuff that's in my head and all these skills that I have to share Bible classes. And he has pre provided the funds to do that. 
He has provided the equipment and the know-how to do that. He has given me the money to go through seminary to do that. That is, that's my lane. I know that's my lane. All right. He didn't necessarily give y'all that same lane, right? But you've got your own lane. And the point of this is to look to see what your lane is and to notice that God is providing all the power, all the authority, whatever you need from the storehouses of heaven to accomplish that. And the only thing you need to do is keep your eyes on where God is as you can perceive God in your life and do that. Follow that. That's what I think this is about. I think we have both. The spiritual calling and we have the physical power should it be needed. And that makes sense. We have to find our gift. We just have to follow whatever God has called us to. On, On that wonderful note, I have to go look for my lane. Okay. <laughs> Good luck. And that's kind of all I've got um, for today, other than saying, I don't think, I think a great deal of harm, a great deal of harm has been done in the world by Christians who say God is on my side. Great deal. I, I, I fall on my face Let's and tremble at, at my, my participation in that simply by being part of that lineage and that heritage. And I, and I think, and I want to say that it is never about God being on my side. Never. It is about me being in God, about Mm. me finding my place in the dance, in the perichoresis between God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and just dwelling there and being moved along in that. It is not about me at all. There is no such thing. As God being on my side. There is only me being in God. I know you well, Gail, and I know you're speaking the truth. Well, that's where my heart is. I don't, obviously, don't always do it right. But you know what? What I do is good enough. It is pleasing to God. Just like Jesus said, what I'm doing is pleasing to to the Father, everything I do and say. I know that to be true. We need to know that for ourselves. That what we are doing and saying and being and trying is pleasing and acceptable and holy enough for God. At the end of our session, the subject had come up with about fighting and mm-hmm. God would be fighting for us and I had not figured out how to say it at the time but what I, you just said I've recently heard and it's been in a song and there's some other things with that but 
the whole idea that it's not a fight, it's a dance. Yes. And that makes me want to cry again. So, oh. <laughs> that, that, well, that particular message was really strong and it was someone that had to, had been struggling their whole lives with uh, all sorts of undiagnosed medical things and thinking they were crazy and a lot of other things that went along with it and this was just a song that they had done at the end that's gone really viral for a lot of people to relate to and that's kind of the whole way it wraps up he's not even necessarily talking specifically about God but just fighting that fight you're not fighting against all that that he found to know that it was a dance and there was a dark and a light and you find your dance along within that and you find again in our parlance maybe you know god that's where god is right do you have would you like to share the name of the artist and the song yeah uh and i can put it over on something too but it's ren is goes by r-e-n and the it's um ren and then the name of the song is hi ren h-i hi and then ren r-e-n so I'm going to look that up because that's so much what I'm going through right now with various medical issues. Yeah. And sorry for my group that I was in there for a minute that actually no. heard this already. But um, I just found out this morning by going to a different uh, orthopedic. Um, my orthopedic surgeon disappeared from the face of the earth and my pharmacy said he no longer had credentials, which kind of worried me. And so um, I went to another orthopedic doctor this morning who looked at my neck and basically said he hopes he can fix it. And my neck surgery was botched up. Um, oh, no. And so in, in addition to having just been diagnosed with AFib, and I'm leaving in about 10 minutes to go to the um, heart doctor, and um, having you know various and sundry pain issues in my body and everything else going on. And then to find out that my surgery was botched, I was oh, in a bad place for a little bit here today. But, um, you know, I've just been reminded so many times throughout listening to y'all that God is there. And when you just mentioned that dance, and I'm going to try not to cry right now. Um, my son got married a few weeks ago and I got to have a mother son dance with my son and I'm not a dancer and he's not really a dancer. So we just kind of had fun with it. And the song that we did, um, that we danced to was called, um, the man you've become. Mm. If you've never heard it and you've got a son, look it up. Oh my gosh, it'll make you cry. But anyway, it was more about how, you know, I still see you as my baby and all this, but I'm so proud of the man you've become. And when you just mentioned all that about the dancing with God and, and the, you know, that this is all I could think of is God holding me in his arms and telling me how proud he is of the person that I'm becoming. Oh, and, um, good. Good. I need that right now. Yeah. I, need, I need God. Right we now all that. need that. unexpected ways you do need to check out that high rent it's really you know something one of those where you never know until you look back so i think that's that's a perfect analogy yeah i will definitely go check that out 
All right. That sounds like a good place to stop today. Y'all are tender and wonderful and beautiful. And we will see you next week. All right. Bye, everybody. Thank you.